Welcome to episode number 45 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast where we are creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about the history of regulation around combustible dust in the United States. To do that, we have on an interviewee, Brian Edwards from Conversion Technology. Brian, thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, I'm really excited. Brian is the Director of Engineering at Conversion Technology. Um, they're based out of Norcross, Georgia, and he has over 20 years experience in industries handling combustible dust. He's, he's also involved with technical committees for NFPA 61 and 664. Um, and prior to kind of hitting record and, and earlier on in the podcast, we talked a lot about regulations globally from Germany, from Japan, from New Zealand, more recently with Dr. Chris Bloor. And we have covered quite a bit of ground on explosion protection in the United States. We haven't really given a good solid overview of the kind of history of the regulation landscape. Some things you'll hear about in this interview certainly will be the National Emphasis Program on Combustible Dust from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about that a lot, but really we're going to go back the, the last kind of 10, 15, 20 years, just see what regulation looked like. So before we kind of jump into that, Brian, can you just give a little bit of your your background in industries handling combustible dust just to kind of lay where where your experience comes in? Uh, sure, Chris. So I've been an environmental health and safety consultant to industries for 20 years now. Most of those industries or a lot of those industries have combustible dust issues. I have been specifically focused on combustible dust for the past 11 years. It's been one of my main focuses. And actually, the National Emphasis Program is, is one of the reasons that it became my focus so uh, we, as a consultant industry, we have always helped them maintain compliance with government regulations. And the National Emphasis Program on Combustible Dust was a major issue to many of our clients. So um, I took it upon myself to learn about combustible dust, about combustible dust safety, and about the regulations that apply to it. Excellent. So I'm going to give a, a brief summary of the timeline on the the NEP, and then. Uh, the National Emphasis Program. And then uh, we're kind of just going to jump right into the, the history of it. So I will give a, a brief timeline. So in 2006, the Chemical Safety Board released its Combustible Dust Hazard Study, which it, it kind of called for some, some general industry standards around combustible dust. Later in 2007, OSHA issued the first Combustible Dust National Emphasis Program. Um, this was revised in 2008 after the Imperial Sugar Refinery. In 2009, there was an advanced notification of proposed rulemaking around the topic of combustible dust put out by OSHA. And in 2011, and we may talk about this a bit with, with Brian as well, the expert forum was convened to discuss the topic. And then really, there hasn't been a lot of, of change. You know, the National Emphasis Program has been out there. There's been talk of a general industry standard. Um, but this really seems to have kind of dropped off in 2018 and removed from the regulatory agenda. So I just want to give that sort of short summary up front for the listener and then allow Brian to kind of fill in the gaps and, and go through. You know, I, I came up with that with the research. Brian's actually worked in the industry for that entire period. I'm sure he can provide a lot of insight. So maybe jumping right in, what programs were in place before the National Emphasis Program? So we're talking pre-2007. So there weren't very many regulations or standards that specifically dealt with combustible dust. There were a few industry-specific standards. So there were standards for grain handling facilities that would uh, address 
housekeeping and maximum allowable dust accumulation and had specific requirements for bucket elevators and things like that. There were also some requirements for bakeries, for coal-fired power plants, and for sawmills. But outside of these specific facilities, combustible dust was only really mentioned in passing in a few other standards. So standards that would apply to all facilities. There were really only three standards that actually talked about dust explosion hazards. And a lot of those did it in a, an antiquated way. So for instance, there's a ventilation standard that OSHA has, um, and it quotes uh, NFPA 68, but it references the 1954 edition of NFPA 68 same thing with, uh, it also references NFPA 91, which deals with conveying and dust collection and pneumatic systems, but it references the 1961 version, that standard. There is the electrical standards in OSHA, which that probably has the most references to combustible dust because it has an entire subsection on hazardous or classified locations. So it, um, it uses definition very similar to what you would find in NFPA 70 for a national electrical code. However, there, there are some differences. Um, you know, it doesn't really get into the specifics of design. Instead, it does refer you back to NFPA 70. And then the other standard that actually, you know, uses the word combustible dust is for powered industrial trucks. And it talks about uh, selecting the appropriate powered truck or forklift in hazardous locations where there could be an ignitable dust cloud. But besides that, there was very um, there there is no specific combustible dust standard, no no rule that really outlined all of the requirements needed to keep uh, a facility and the employees safe. Yeah, I appreciate you laying it out like that because I don't know if I've pre-2007, I've, I've heard of all of those, but I, I never really got a good grasp of that was the sort of the entirety of, of the regulatory landscape, if you will. You mentioned some of the dates on some of the, the references, so referencing through to NFPA, but the older editions. Is this a, is this a, a bigger issue that we see with regula- regulation in general, is, is maybe not keeping up to date with the, the latest information and technology? Um, yeah, we see that a lot with OSHA, especially. I know one of the former directors of OSHA essentially said they have a rulemaking process that's broken. You know, you'll get these references to the consensus standards, and in general, they will put a date to it because for OSHA to make a rule, it has to go through a rulemaking process. They have to do what's called a small business regulatory fairness act review so they have to make sure that if they come up with a rule that it's not going to have negative economic impacts that would hurt um, small businesses and so if they reference a consensus standard that could potentially change they typically will put a date or a year on there because their rule processing mechanism doesn't allow them to sort of have an open-ended standard that is outside of their control. So if they said, hey, you you have to comply with NFPA 652, it might change in the future and it might change in a way that OSHA doesn't have control over and it wouldn't go through OSHA's rulemaking process. So 
they they put these dates in there. But we see the same things with uh, occupational exposure to air contaminants. You know, they might have references to old values that have long since been determined to not be protective. But because the rulemaking process is, is so difficult, it's hard for OSHA to come in and, and update these standards. Yeah, it sounds, you know, from the outside looking in, that that would be a pretty inflexible system, right? You have a, a long uh, long lead up time to to the rulemaking process, to um, authorization to that, and then also the requirement to, to date and timestamp anything that, that goes in there. We, we talked with Dr. Chris Bloor, who I just mentioned previously in episode 38 of the podcast, and he mentioned that as a real strength of the New Zealand code of practice was that it, it references you must meet the most up-to-date NFPA standard or, or whichever guideline they're pointing to at the time of building the facility, which then allows you to stay up-to-date and without that process. Um, yeah, I, I think that would be a strength there. Um, I'm sure there are some people that, uh, I guess, when the OSH Act was implemented uh, and issued by Congress, you know, they they still wanted to have some limitations, you know, but I'm not a political science major, so I can't comment <laughs> on uh, how, how how we came up with this system. Right. Okay. So the kind of next step then, so we're talking pre-2007, we had some OSHA standards around ventilation, around electrical classification, and around power vehicles. Can you just give an overview of what what is the Combustless National Emphasis Program and you know, what, what's involved with that? How was that different maybe than what was done before? You know, I'm glad you pointed out the fact that the NEP that we know, the one that was issued in 2008, was actually a reissuance of the National Emphasis Program from the year before. Initially, the 2007 NEP was really just a guide for uh, OSHA's, what they call COSHOs, so it's Compliance, Safety, and health officials. So it's really the the inspectors. So the OSHA inspectors were giving guidance on how, uh, if you are at a workplace, how you can recognize dust hazards and how you can issue citations uh, for, uh, you know, employers that did not, you know, address the hazards there or, or leave their employer employees exposed to combustible dust hazards. So it established basically a, a mechanism for creating random inspections based on the National Industry Code, and it also just outlined all the existing standards that might not be specific to combustible dust, but you know, if you had combustible dust hazards, OSHA inspectors could you know, issue citations, which are basically monetary fines uh, to, to the facilities. Okay, and how did that change in the 2008 version of the NEP then? Well, a lot of a lot of that inspection um, requirement stayed, but they also added an increase on um, outreach. So they mainly uh, added the fact that they're not just going to tell their instructors about this and go out and do, uh, or their inspectors about this and go out and do inspections and issue citations on combustible dust, but they made it a lot more public. So they issued a poster that explained combustible dust and its hazards. They issued flyers that listed the types of dust that might be combustible and the types of industries that where it was located. And they also offered free training. So they, they OSHA has a grant, it's the Susan B. Harding grant, that allows uh, money to be directed to free training for industry and 
and people. And so they did a big push in 2009 for industry training and this, this public information that they put out there. But then they also sort of doubled down on those inspections. So they, they increased the number of inspections. They uh, even made it a goal to, to inspect all these sugar refineries in the U.S. So, so there's a few other things that it did when it reissued the, the NEP. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that because it's, it's funny. This morning, just uh, before we, a couple hours before we recorded, I was uh, speaking to an individual about combustible dust hazards just over the phone, and they asked what industries and dust are involved. And the first thing that came to mind was that combustible dust poster by OSHA. I couldn't find it this morning. Um, and then as soon as you mentioned I said, that's what I was thinking about. I just Googled and found it. So I'll actually email it to them because it was part of the outreach, part of the training is, is getting that kind of material out there, having groups that are you know, at the forefront of the regulation, doing that, I think is really important. The 2000, 2007 to 2008 kind of revision, the only kind of point that I had on it of, of note or reference I could find was really that was taking what was in place already and moving it into targeting industries that have been identified as having large losses. So obviously at the time, Imperial Sugar had just happened. So that was a, a big industry that they were looking at and maybe some other ones from industries identified by the Chemical Safety Board. But the other outreach efforts, you don't hear as much about those, or at least I didn't in my initial research. So I appreciate you sharing those through. Do you know if the Susan B, I think it's Susan B. Harding tra- Hardy Training Grant, is that the correct name? Uh, yes, that is. Is it still in, in operation, I guess the best word? Well, I think the grant uh, exists, but it changes focuses. So, you know, it, it's a short period of time when, you know, they would direct funds from that grant to something like combustible dust. And I, I believe it's, you know, changed to other topics since then. Uh, that was around the 2009 time period. I think it lasted, they offered training over about a year for different organizations. So uh, here in Georgia, Georgia Institute of Technology, which is my alma mater, they they get a lot of the grant funding. So it's their, um, their occupational program will receive some of that funding. So they will put the trainings together. They will you know, hold training sessions and conferences, you know, across, you know, across the region. So that's, that's how it was rolled out here. But I I don't think they're still doing it on combustible dust. Okay. No, that's what I was thinking was I'd include that in the show notes in case um, there are people that are looking for that material. I don't see it online here. So maybe if any listeners know of that program or any similar programs, email me at chris at dustsafetyscience.com and let me know. And we'll include those in the, the show notes as well. So at this point in time, now it's 2008, we have the NEP reissued. We have a good idea of how it kind of initially came out. In terms of how it was rolled out to industry, is there anything that, that should be added to what we, we've talked about already with training inspectors, putting a systematic inspection program in place? Was there any other parts of that? Uh, that was the main way that it was rolled out. The OSHA did, and I wish they had continued with this because you know the NEP is still in place it's still listed as an emphasis program that's active but um, after the first year in 2009 they published a NEP status report that you know discussed sort of how that a little over a year and a half or how the NEP had functioned since it started in uh, 2007 so I think that was a really interesting report that they discussed you know it gave some of the statistics um, about how that NEP functioned you know for specifics they you know they quoted that they had conducted over a thousand 
federal and state inspections of facilities that were identified under the NEP. Um, you know, they even went in as far as, you know, discussing the percentages uh, for each different industry. One thing I was really interested in was just that 25% of the inspections conducted under the NEP in that first year were for the wood products industry. And then the other two highest were food manufacturers and metal production facilities. So between those three sectors, it accounted for over one half of all the inspections that were conducted under the NEP. So I guess that allowed people to see, you know, who is OSHA uh, focusing on and who do they feel you know, is most acceptable to uh, dust explosion or, or to hazards associated with combustible dust. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that report because I, I had seen it um, now that I pull it up and I hadn't realized that it's sort of a report, but I have it online here. Um, we'll include a, a copy of that in the show notes as well for any listeners that are interested and, and we normally try to pull out any of the OSHA citations that are in the federal database and include that in our instant reporting. Um, not to point out the companies involved, but again, like you're saying, to point out the industries. Um, we actually have a, a podcast episode. It won't be out for a couple of weeks now. I think it'll be out August 27th and at the time recording, it's August 15th. So two, ep- or actually it'll be two episodes previous. So episode number 43, we talk about those OSHA citations in 2018 and give some of those breakdowns. Um, so if you're listening to this in the future, you can go back and check out that episode. So in terms of the NEP then, there's a couple things in the middle that I kind of want to talk about. So you mentioned this report was released, which is really helpful, and I'd encourage the listener to go read through that. I've here noted the advanced notification of proposed rulemaking. Was that put in place, if, you have a, if you're familiar with it, was that put in place during this report release, or is that something um, separate? The Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, or ANPR, uh, it came out, I believe, in October of uh, 2009, which would have been just a few months after this report that OSHA put on the status of the NEP. So I think the status report came out, you know, uh, ahead of the ANPR to give, you know, stakeholders a chance to sort of see what OSHA's actions were and to use that to guide how uh, they might go forward with the ANPR. And then following the release of the ANPR, there were several uh, stakeholder meetings. So they had, I think in three cities, there was a meeting in Washington, a meeting in in Atlanta that I attended, and then a meeting in Chicago. And then as you mentioned earlier, the input from those stakeholder meetings were used to put together a list of questions for an expert forum that they had in 2011. They held that in Washington. I was also able to attend that, and that was, you know, it was a it was a really interesting um, event at the time. I thought that um, you know OSHA was really making progress towards coming up with a standalone uh, combustible dust rule. Following the expert forum, it, I believe the rule got as far as basically an economic analysis. So, uh, you know, they used input from the expert forum on, you know, what should a dust rule look like? Um, you know, I think a lot of the comments said it, it it should be kind of like PSM light, so not as complex as process safety management, you know, full chemical process safety management standards, but but have some of the same elements, such as the requirement to do uh, process hazard analysis or 
you know, what NFPA is coined as a dust hazard analysis, you know, and, and also how strict should it be with the requirements for NFPA to apply to all facilities? And I think that was, you know, they initially looked at, okay, if we just, you know, make facilities comply with the existing NFPA standards, would that be a potential way to develop the rule? And with that, guys, in 2012, they started conducting survey of, of experts and across, you know, consulting and industry and insurance to try to outline or estimate what a potential cost might be for a facility to comply with um, a proposed rule. Um, I was actually one of the uh, people who were interviewed in that process. And we discussed, you know, sort of uh, your average size facility or your average large facility, your average small facility, you know, what's the percentages of facilities that are in compliance and what would the average cost to upgrade their equipment to be, you know, in compliance with the current NFPA standards. So at that time, I I believe the answers that uh, the research group that OSHA hired, I believe the answers they got from across the board were that it would be uh, fairly expensive for, you know, an existing facility to retrofit its operation to, you know, the current NFPA standards. Uh, you know, some of the values were, were pretty high from the averages that I saw. And I think at that time we were still sort of, maybe if not in the throes of the Great Recession, but, you know, still not fully out of it. So I, I think that really slowed down the rulemaking uh, once OSHA saw how retroactively applying a lot of these dust safety standards, how expensive it would be. And I don't think many people had you know, sort of the uh, will to try to push that through at the time when you know there was such high em- unemployment and most industries were not really you know expending you know on capital investments. Was there any discussion on new builds and new facilities that are coming out, whether or not they they could uh, have as a fraction of capital cost or um, anything there? Uh, you know, I think they were mainly, uh, the, you know, the questions I had were mainly focused on existing facilities. I, I think there was maybe an assumption that for a new build that they would have the new, you know, sort of international building codes, which reference a lot of the NFPA standards. So, you know, they would hope that they would be built in compliance. So I think a lot of this cost cost analysis was based on existing operations. Um, and they looked at it sort of different ways. You know, if you want to just focus only on, you know, maybe critical processes or if you want to do sort of a full NFPA compliance evaluation, I think those some, were some of the gauges they were using. But I definitely got the in, uh, impression that it was mainly focused on existing facilities that were already in operation with the assumption that a new facility would you know, be built to code uh, at the time. Right. Yeah. That's some good, that's some really good background. I think I've heard parts of this story before, never laid out as succinctly. Um, and I'm happy to get it here. I think Jason Reason maybe mentioned in one of his episodes that from their analysis, um, OSHA found that it would be the most expensive rule put in place to date. Um, and I'm sure he's kind of referring the same, the same topics that you're discussing here. So how did that impact the development of the rulemaking moving forward then from there? It basically put it on hold. So we it would continue for the next few years. It was always listed on OSHA's regulatory agenda 
And, you know, every year when they put out the new agenda, we would get excited. Okay, it's still on there. Um, and that stayed on there until uh, 2017, I believe the spring 2017 agenda. OSHA uh, decided to take it off just because it was uh, too costly and they wanted to focus on other objectives. So to be honest, it was a, a big guessing game from, say, 2012 up until 2017. We, you know, we would hold faith that OSHA wanted to you know, implement it, but you know, we, we never really got any indication and they wouldn't respond with anything other than, hey, it's still on our agenda and that's all we can say. Um, you know, there were a few rumors here and there, and but nothing ever came to pass. One thing of note is that it wasn't just OSHA that was pushing for this. I mean, back in 2008, it went as far as the U.S. Congress even put a drafted a bill to require OSHA to create that rule that was following the Imperial Sugar uh, disaster. And then also the Chemical Safety Board, I believe it was in 2014 even wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called uh, The Danger of Combustible Dust. And again, they urged industry and government to you know, try to work together to come up with some type of rule. And despite you know, all these outside influences, I think you know, that, that price tag or that OSHA saw was, you know, was a little too high for them to get past. I wonder if you have any thoughts on things that could be done. So I'll I've been looking for a while for a model that works on a large scale to get um, things like this done. And I've, I've seen some, I've seen some that have worked a bit. Um, so the two that I'll bring up are the, the OSHA grain handling standard back in 1980, when that went in place for good or for bad or where the standard lies today, but how it actually got done for my, um, my research in the area. So I, I wasn't there and, and I haven't talked to many people that were, but it seems that that got passed because it was a very collaborative effort between OSHA, between the the large industry associations that are responsible for that industry sector, and the the experts in the field like yourself or you know people that are involved in FPA. They they all kind of got down to the table, sat down, and, and were able to push something through. Similarly, in in the the western provinces in Canada here, British Columbia specifically, they've had uh, some really good success with WorkSafe BC sitting down with experts and also sitting down with the some of the industry associations there like uh, the wood pellet association of canada and once they can all get to the table and get to a common level then then there's some that's a little bit easier to get things to move right because the industry associations have a lot of power of their members they are also able to kind of influence and and point to what's best for them and also bring their requirements to the table um, instead of just sort of a top down here's what the the rule is and and pushing it through so I don't know. Is is that sound like a, a model that could help? One of the difficulties I see with the with the general industry standard is that it's that right because it's a general industry standard and applies to everyone. Who's going to be that industry um, association that's going to step up and and help develop it? Well, you probably have a hard time because it's not about anyone specific. It's general. I don't know. I'm not sure what the question is there, but do you have any thoughts on on that process or how how things might be able to get unstuck? Uh, I think you said it exactly. the The difficulty is that it is a general a general standard because different industries have different views of risk and they have different ideas. I mean, not just views of risk. I mean, there are different levels of risk in different industries. So, you know, um, if you're 
at a bakery with flour dust, it's it's nowhere near as dangerous as aluminum or magnesium dust in a in a metal operation. So I think you you get to a problem where people say, well, okay, let's have a baseline for you know what would be included, how dangerous needs to be in here, and you always you know there's always someone saying, well. You know, you shouldn't exclude anyone because you know you can still get hurt even if it's uh, even if it's a small industry, if it's a small workplace, you could still have someone injured. And uh, a lot of times, it gets hung up on that where you know people are reluctant to you know exclude people. And then once you you know once you start in bringing everyone in, then you know it, you get a lot of different opinions. You get different industry groups that you know aren't going to have the same idea of how they want to be regulated. Uh, we're even seeing that with, uh, you know, the NFPA as they try to, you know, correlate the various NFPA standards, you still get pushback from some of the, you know, individual industry groups, you know, because they, they do want a little bit of autonomy. They want, you know, they don't want, you know, maybe their their grain dust to be handled the same way or lumped in the same way as with metal dust or with, you know, um, maybe some, you know, highly explosive, you know, pharmaceutical or chemical dust. So you just have, um, it's harder to get a consensus or an agreement when you have uh, so many diverse opinions. I think that that would be a difficulty with the a general industry combustible dust standard is, you know, just uh, the pure diversity of opinions you would have to manage. Yeah, I mean, it's like that in, in, in everything, right? I, I think back to when I started this website and, and um, DustX Research Limited, our corporate company, and the work that we're doing, there was this, this big question at the very start of, should I just focus on combustible dust or should I maybe do explosion safety? Or maybe I should do process safety, kind of a level above that, or maybe I should do health and safety. And if I had to pick one of those really general topics, I probably wouldn't be here today having a conversation with a with a combustible dust expert, and it probably wouldn't have been successful because we couldn't have dialed into the needs and requirements of of this industry, which is something I've I've spent you know over a decade in my life studying dust explosions now. But it's that same question, and and in in that kind of world, they might talk call them um, niches or or uh, depending on if you're you're European or or uh, American. So how far down do you go? And I think it's it's hard if you want to try to please everyone then you'll probably end up not really helping anyone. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's uh it's the whole adage, you know, don't let perfection get in the way of good. Uh, I probably said that wrong, but yeah, I mean it's just it's impossible to make everybody uh happy and I think there's enough voices out there that don't want the as they would say the the standard to be watered down that they they push back and say no, we need it to have these minimal requirements and uh, there's a lot of people who think those minimal requirements might be uh, going a little too far. Personally, if, if I were to uh, go down a path, I think the requirement for a dust hazard analysis, you know, some of the basic, you know, identification of the hazards in your facility and then, you know, apply your measured judgment on, you know, what you want to do. I think that would be a good start, you know, at least so you can get that minimal aspect out there and then you know let people you know decide for themselves how much risk they're allowing um and as long as you know you have a pretty 
fair sense that you're keeping your employees safe. You know, I think those should be some minimal standards. And But I don't really know the mechanism to get that back in front of OSHA, to get that back in a state where we were as close as we were, you know, eight or nine years ago. You know, I, I hope that maybe things change and, it, you know, there's a push again. And I, I just really hope that it doesn't take another uh, catastrophe to to restart this whole process. Really, really important discussion. Really great discussion. I think we'll we'll kind of cover one more, and you're you're going into it a bit, but one more small topic. Uh, well, maybe it's not even a small topic. We'll cover it in a, in maybe a shorter, abbreviated version. But so we've talked about the whole NEP development, the processes that went through, um, regulatory agenda, and and now how is OSHA currently regulating combustible dust hazards? What's the landscape look like today? Well, essentially, it's the same as with the initial NEP. So they're still issuing citations based on various other existing standards. So one of the most common standards is referred to as the housekeeping standard, but it it ironically actually falls under the walking and working surfaces standard, which basically just says your your facility, your the workplace should be clean. And then they will look at the amount of dust or fugitive dust that's in the work environment uh, to determine if uh, there is enough dust to present a flash fire or explosion hazard to the employees. And so if that hazard is presented to the employees, then they would issue a citation under the housekeeping standard. They also issue citations under the electrical standard, so uh, places that do not have you know, dust-tight or dust-explosion-proof equipment in areas that would be considered a hazardous location, they will issue citations for that. And another common issuance is uh, for uh, what's called the general duty clause, which is just sort of a, a, a broad standard that OSHA has that says you know, the employer is responsible for providing a, a workplace that's free of recognized hazards. So they will often quite quote uh, NFPA standards and say, okay, well, you know, first of all, this NFPA standard shows that it's, a, you know, say wood dust is a recognized hazard. Okay, so there's been an NFPA standard on fire prevention uh, in the woodworking industry for uh, almost 100 years now, since the 1920s. So uh, the industry has recognized that wood dust is a fire hazard and, and dry wood dust is you know, a flash fire and explosion hazard. And, if, uh, and that NFPA standard has also provided you know, reasonable means for a facility to reduce those hazards. And so by failing to comply with NFPA standards, OSHA will often argue that um, you've exposed your employees to a hazard without, you know, abating that hazard. And so the general duty clause is a, it's a way they'll often issue citations. Uh, and there, there are other standards, you know, like hazard communication. If you, you know, if you have a safety data sheet that does not identify a material as combustible, but it is, or if you don't um, educate your employees on that hazard. So if uh, employees are working in a dusty environment when that dust is combustible, but they haven't been told or taught that, hey, this is a fire hazard, um, that would be a potential cause for OSHA to issue a citation. That is uh, essentially the mechanisms in which they are issuing the citations. I I will 
uh, say that it the dust without the presence of a you know a, a clear cut general industry combustible dust standard, uh, we have seen uh, inconsistency in which in which the way inspections go and in which manner OSHA issue citations. You know, we've seen citations issued for you know maybe a small pile of wood dust that's behind you know a radial arm saw and a in a you know maybe a garage door shop you know where it's not even a large manufacturing facility you know OSHA would come in and issue a citation for you know a few handfuls of dust and then other times we've seen inspections come through and you know give a clean bill of health to facility and you know maybe they do have some areas where there might be explosion hazards i think the key is that you know the OSHA inspection officers in general they're most of them are not combustible dust experts OSHA does have some experts in combustible dust, especially in their, uh, you know, Salt Lake Testing Center, and and some of the inspectors are inspectors are very well versed on combustible dust and and really know what they're looking at. But then other times, inspector might not be a combustible dust expert, so they either might see dust on the floor and assume that's a hazard, or they might not recognize uh, conditions where there is a hazard. So I guess the only thing I can say is that it's it's sort of inconsistent in how it is rolled out, especially in the different areas of the country and with different regional offices. And then when you consider that there are several states that administer uh, their own OSHA program and aren't covered under the federal program, uh, it makes it hard to you know consistently say this is exactly how OSHA handles it in every situation. Yeah, certainly. We've heard that discussion before of, of inconsistent inspection processes and inconsistent citations, and it, it causes a little bit of confusion, right? It may allow things that are, that are truly unsafe to, to go unnoticed, and it may also overly be prohibitive on, on those that uh, you know maybe not be as lead to as severe of a result uh, as, as other ones. So I think that's important. Uh, this has been a, an amazing interview on my end. Uh, it's tied together the pieces of a lot of things that that we've looked at over the last um, number of, of episodes over the last uh, 12 months with this podcast so i i'm really appreciative of that and just on on closing i would encourage anyone if they have any questions for brian we'll have his contact information that in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 45 for this episode i know the conversion technology is actually doing some live demonstrations and doing a combustible seminar on I think it's September 19th, 2019. This episode will actually come out September 10th. So we we would normally in the first week get maybe 80 to 100 people um, listening to the podcast. Now, maybe probably half of those are in the United States, but I'd encourage people that live demonstration seminar series will be in Kansas City, um, hosted by by Conversion Technology, also by Fike and their Kansas City um, Testing Center and CST is also, CST Industry is also a partner there. I encourage people you're listening to this when it comes out to, we'll include in the show notes as well, a link to that event. I was talking with Brian. He's not sure um, how many people the facility can hold. So if uh, if you get there late, it, it may be filled up. Um, but anything you want to share on that, Brian, before we kind of cut it for this episode? Um, yeah, I think that it's going to be a great opportunity. And I hope there are, if anyone is listening to this and is interested, I, you know, uh, I hope that there are some spots left. You can um, check out the event page on uh, the website. And, you know, I think it's going to be great uh, 
Vike is hosting the live demonstration, and uh, CST, they are a uh, uh, manufacturer of silos and tanks, and, and they're going to have some really great information on, you know, how to protect uh, silos and uh, containers. And, you know, obviously you'll get to see Fikes, explosion protection equipment in action. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think if anyone, if, if you're able to make it, I highly encourage you to come. We have a morning of educational seminars and then, you know, an afternoon of uh, getting to see some live explosions. So I think it's going to be a great event. Yeah, and I've been down to the Fike Kansas City um, Center there, and, and they do great demos. They have a great team, very, very knowledgeable. And then CST and, and CTI, Commercial Technology and CST Industries, they'll both be very helpful. So I'd encourage people to check that out. Um, Brian, I just want to say thank you again for, for sharing your time and your knowledge on the, the history of the combustible dust regulation with the United States, on the National Emphasis Program. And here's hoping that in, in the future, we can really see some more movement um, figure out ways as a community to, to start getting this through as well. Well, Chris, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Brian Edwards, Director of Engineering at Conversion Technology. We're talking about the history of the OSHA Combustible Dust National Emphasis Program, talking about regulation in the United States. Uh, this is part of our kind of mission this year to understand combustible dust as a, as a global challenge and, and develop global solutions. In a lot of previous episodes, we've talked a lot about what's going on in other parts of the world. Brian really wanted to come on today and share his view of what's happened over the last decade and more um, in the United States. And I think there's a lot we can learn there, a lot of things that have been successful, um, and then some things that are still open challenges. So I won't go through the whole summary of the episode, but we did cover sort of 2007, 2008 through to to today. And and what do things look like? How are facilities handling combustible dust being regulated today? Um, and everything in the middle. So I want to thank Brian again for coming on. If you want to contact him, we'll have his contact information in the show notes or a way to contact him there. And I'd certainly encourage anyone interested in understanding combustible dust better to to check out the seminar and the the live demos that are going to be happening on September 19, 2019 out of Kansas City. So with that, I want to say thank you as always for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I'm really looking forward to talking with you next week with another expert around combustible dust safety.